On February 24th, 2022, Russia launched a large-scale military invasion of Ukraine, one of its neighbors to the southwest and an independent, sovereign country. This blatant violation of international law marked a major escalation to the ongoing conflict that began with Russia's annexation of Crimea in 2014. There's no easy or black and white explanation to fully encompass why this war is happening, its origins, or what's to come in the days ahead, but here at the Slavic Connection, we're determined to bring accurate and necessary information to our listeners that's accessible to all of you, regardless of background and interest. So with that in mind, we had Professor David Marples on the show. He's a British-born Canadian historian and a distinguished university professor at the University of Alberta. He specializes in history and contemporary politics of Belarus, Russia, and Ukraine. So he was perfect to come and speak with us to cover what we need to know about the crisis in Ukraine and answer any questions you may have. Take a listen. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. We thought we would get started just asking what seems like a simple question, but maybe a a little bit more complicated, but let's start with Ukraine. Could you tell us a little bit about Ukraine, its history? Suddenly all this attention is on this country, but there's so little understanding of it. Okay, it's a it's a state of 44, roughly 44 and a half million people. It became independent in 1991 uh, with the collapse of the Soviet Union. And it had periods in its past where it had declared independence, uh, particularly in the 20th century. Uh, prior to that, you could say there were sort of signs of, of statehood in Ukraine. It had what was called a hetmanate in the 17th century. It had Cossack kingdoms. But for most of its history, Ukraine has been part of empires that were run by other states, um, mainly Russia, but also Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and also the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which ended in 1918. After the revolution in St. Petersburg, Petrograd as it was then, in 1917, Ukraine declared independence the following January. But it was a time when the German army had entered Ukraine and it only lasted a few weeks. And there was a period then, about three years of constant civil wars, changes of government, until the Soviet Union, Soviet Russia as it was at that time, invaded and set up a communist government in the city of Kharkiv in the eastern part of Ukraine. And Soviet rule began, and Ukraine was accorded, of course, its own republic. It became the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, and that was given a certain amount of autonomy, you could say, really, in the 1920s to develop its own national culture and language. But by the early 1930s, when Stalin was firmly in power, that seemed that completely changed. And... The language was repressed. Uh, Your cultural life was was also repressed. Many uh, leaders were arrested and executed. And a famine took place in Ukraine in 1932, especially in 1933, which really devastated the rural regions. Following that, about 3.9 million people died in the famine. And it was followed in 1937 by the most serious purge that Stalin ever held, in which Ukraine suffered uh, pretty badly. And not long after that, the Soviet Ukraine was expanded at the expense of Poland when the Western part was incorporated by the Soviet Union in tune with the German invasion of Western Poland. 
and World War II, then followed with German occupation. There was some support for German occupation, particularly in the western part of Ukraine that um, had been under the Austro-Hungarian Empire. But by and large, the German occupation was a pretty harsh affair and something like two and a half million Ukrainians served in the Red Army, played a pivotal role in the victory over Germany. But then the Soviet rule came back. For about five or six years, there was a guerrilla war in Western Ukraine against renewed Soviet rule. But eventually this was overcome really by superior forces. And many of these people died or were uh, rounded up and arrested. Many sent to Siberia and ended up in gulag camps. Subsequently, you could say Ukraine came fairly heavily under the sway of Moscow. There were periods when uh, Ukrainians took part in the dissident movement in the 60s and 70s. But by the early 70s, Ukraine had a very strong communist ruler, Vladimir Strabitsky, who remained in power until what, September 1989. So this was really into the Gorbachev period before any kind of reform started to hit Ukraine because it was kept very firmly within the Soviet alliance. That's not to say that there was no support for Soviet rule in Ukraine because Ukrainians played a role in that as well. In fact, many of the Soviet leaders derived from Ukraine. They were not Ukrainians, but they derived from Ukraine. Brezhnev was born in Ukraine, for example. Khrushchev was born in Russia, but he was raised in the Donbass region of Ukraine. So there was a kind of tradition in Eastern Ukraine of, a, of being a communist heartland. But the period of independence came in 1991 and it was really gained through, I would say, popular movement called Ruk. There were several other movements at the same time, a Ukrainian Republican Party, a Green Party, and even, you could say, the branch of the Communist Party in the parliament also began to subscribe to nationalist ideas and eventually to independence. So the first president of Ukraine was a former ideological secretary of the Communist Party called Leonid Kravchuk. He became president in December 1991, remained president until the summer of 1994, when he held an election and was narrowly defeated by Leonid Kuchma. These two names sound so similar, and that's a, a habit of, of Ukrainian history to come up with people with almost the same names. Kuchma ruled for two terms. He came from the eastern part of Ukraine. He'd been manager of an arms factory, fairly close to Russia. Ukraine kept fairly close to Russia while he was there. But in 2004 election, Viktor Yushchenko, who was head of a movement called Our Ukraine, contested the election with the sort of designated successor, Viktor Yanukovych, who was the candidate of Russia. And had remained quite close to, to Russia. And in fact, Vladimir Putin carried out election sloganeering for Yanukovych in Moscow. And the result of that was a narrow win for Yanukovych as a result of votes coming in from the eastern part of Ukraine, from the Donbass. The news that this had happened brought masses, masses of people out into the streets in Kiev. And it was noted that the number of votes coming in from the Donbass exceeded the number of electors in the Donbass. So not only were they all 100% in favor of Yanukovych, but they'd increased in numbers from the actual size of the electorate. 
So these protests went on for several days. Everybody in the protest was wearing orange. It was called the Orange Revolution. Yushchenko and Yulia Tymoshenko were two of the prominent people behind that. It was successful, and in the end, the second round of the election was rerun. And this time, Yushchenko won the election. Yushchenko was, in my view, not a very strong president. And in fact, he spent a lot of his presidency outside Kiev, outside Ukraine, traveling around. He had several little pet projects. One was to make the famine in Ukraine or Holodomor to be declared an act of genocide. That was a big deal. He also made heroes of guerrilla leaders from the anti-Soviet forces in the Second World War, particularly Stepan Bandera, leader of the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, and Roman Shukhevich, the leader of the Ukrainian insurgent army. This incensed Russia, and I remember at the time in 2008, when he made Shukhevich a national hero, the Russian president, Dmitry Medvedev, who had just taken over as president, broke off relations with Yushchenko. In 2008 was also the year that NATO offered a membership action plan for Georgia and Ukraine. Both were interested. Georgia indicated it was going to accept. And as a result, two regions broke away from Georgia and the Russian army came in. And that was kind of the end of that. Ukraine was not invaded because it had never gone forward with this plan. But clearly, Russia was very concerned what would happen in 2010 in the next election. But it was won by Viktor Yanukovych, who, I mean, he hadn't fallen very far because even Yushchenko made him prime minister in his, I think, when he fell out with uh, Yulia Tymoshenko, which happened frequently, he made Yanukovych his prime minister. So Yanukovych remained prominent. He came back in 2010, former governor of Donetsk. He brought in all these Donetsk people who monopolized the cabinet. Prime minister came from Donetsk, although he was an ethnic Russian. And so Ukraine became very much controlled by what you might call a Donetsk clan. It became extremely corrupt. And Yanukovych amassed a personal fortune. He also siphoned out a lot, a lot of state funds for his own uses. He lived in a huge palace outside Kiev. He had a zoo there. He lived like a prince. But in 2013, uh, the European Union, which had been working with Ukraine from about 2008 in an Eastern Partnership project, invited Ukraine to be an associate member of the European Union. And Yanukovych in indicated that he was interested. But just before the signing was due to take place in, in Vilnius, in Lithuania, he changed his mind. He accepted instead a huge loan from Russia, from Vladimir Putin, I believe it was about $15 billion, and declared that he was no longer going to join the European Union as an associate member. This brought out a renewal of protests in the streets, which lasted about four months with interruptions, but about four months. It turned quite vicious towards the end. Many uh, infiltrated these protests who were more extreme. They had weapons and they took matters into their own hands. In February of 2014, the snipers on the rooftops fired into the demonstrations, killed over about 100 people. And even to this day, no one's ever been brought to justice for those killings. Yanukovych fled from Kiev. He'd, he'd been very tentative about turning the troops on the demonstrators, 
um, and eventually decided to flee. And he went to Crimea, but eventually he ended up in Russia, where he is today. Putin at that time was at the Olympic Winter Games in Sochi. He left the Games, went to the Duma, asked for special military powers, and then ordered the annexation of Crimea, which was not really resisted. The Russian Black Sea fleet was already in the bays in Sevastopol, and it was in a completely controlling situation. A referendum was held, but the referendum was never going to give it back to Ukraine. And the two questions were, should Crimea be part of Russia or should it go back to its 1992 constitution, which in fact gave it full autonomy from Ukraine. So there's no, no going back with that one. And of course, they agreed to join Russia. At the same time, in the spring of 2014, some of the troops, the so-called little green men who had invaded Crimea, were sent to the Donbass and eastern Ukraine and began to change governments in East Ukrainian cities, removing the ones who were pro-Europe or let's say pro-democratic and putting in pro-Russian governments. In most of Eastern Ukraine, in places like Kharkiv, Dnipropetrovsk, as it was then called, and several others, these governments were quickly removed by the progressive democratic forces. But in the Donbass region of Donetsk and Luhansk, it proved much more difficult to do that. The leader of the separatist forces was a former intelligence agent from Moscow called Igor Gherkin, whose official position was defense minister. He carried out very strict military regime in the areas where he was, and he set up a capital in Slavyansk, which is sort of in the uh, central part of, or even western part of Donetsk region. And the Ukrainian acting president, the acting president after Poroshenko left, a man called Alexander Turchinov, ordered what he called an anti-terrorist operation into the Donbass. And this made some progress. It was a bit of a ragtag army, but it made some progress. It was gradually pushing the separatist forces back. And at that point, Vladimir Putin abandoned Igor Gherkin and his forces in Slavyansk and clearly expected that they would be arrested or killed. But instead, Gherkin took these forces and retreated to the city of Donetsk, right living with the civilian part. But the Ukrainian army kept coming and obviously was now firing on civilians because it was, it was hitting the cities, that particular city of Donetsk where the separatist forces had hidden out. At a certain point in this war, around August of 2014, just as it looked like the separatists might be defeated, the Russian army came over the border, uh, surrounded Ukrainian forces in Ilovaisk, and simply massacred about a thousand of them. And this brought the new president, Petro Poroshenko, into a situation where he felt there had to be a stoppage and an armistice was signed. And an agreement was reached at Minsk, mediated, by the great Democrat Alexander Lukashenko. I won't dwell on this first Minsk Accord because war broke out again shortly afterwards and carried on until the spring of 2015, when once again, the Russian army came in in a big battle for the town of Devaltseva, which is halfway between Luhansk and Donetsk cities. It's a, it's a vital rail link. 
and the Russians came in to make sure the separatists won that one. And then we went back to Minsk. And the Minsk Accords were presided over by the foreign ministers of France and Germany, by the president of Ukraine, by the president of Russia. And they were also signed by the leaders of the two separatist republics, so-called Donetsk People's Republic, Luhansk People's Republic. So this accord said simply that the heavy weapons had to be removed. The opposing armed formations had to be moved away from the border. Ukraine agreed to give autonomy to these regions and Ukraine would be allowed to regain control of its eastern borders. The heavy forces were pulled back. There was no more major clashes after that. But fighting continued and Ukraine never had control over its own borders nor did the Ukrainian parliament ever agree to give more autonomy to Donetsk and Luhansk regions, arguing that they didn't have control over these regions. They were under the control of separatist forces controlled by Russia. This was not satisfactory to either side, and yet it continued for the next eight years. But I think over these eight years, uh, the presidency of Poroshenko was hostile to Russia, It nationalized the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, for example. There was a clash in the Black Sea when Poroshenko declared martial law in uh, late 2018. But in 2019, when there was an election, Poroshenko was defeated by Volodymyr Zelensky. And I felt at the time that this election was not about conflict with Russia. The election was about living standards which had gone down quite dramatically in the period of Poroshenko's presidency. And as a result, Ukrainians elected a complete outsider, someone with no political experience, a Russian-speaking Jewish comedian, a television star, uh, someone who was very as popular in Russia as he was in Ukraine. And obviously, it seemed to me that Russia expected quite a lot from him that this was someone they could work with. This was a much more preferable to these nationalists, as they call them, neo-Nazis, um, who were running Kiev. But in fact, not a lot changed under Zelensky, and he followed the European direction that Poroshenko had set out. He also, more recently, towards the into the third year of his presidency anyway, began to take steps to curb pro-Russian sentiments, pro-Russian media in Ukraine. He shut down several Russian-language media. He also placed the leading pro-Russian oligarch, Viktor Medvedchuk, a member of parliament under house arrest. And when that term expired, he renewed it. And these were not things that endeared him to Russia. So it seemed that Putin got more and more irate and at some point decided to take drastic steps. Having said that, I think that Putin has this kind of vision of Ukraine as part of the Russian past, part of the Russian world, by language, by culture, uh, by religion. He's got a view of Ukraine that is really out of date, and and his view of, of history is also very narrow. This is a sort of imperial view of the Russian past where the empire is, Russian empire is all powerful. Interestingly, I put a map up in a talk I gave here yesterday to show what the Russian empire looked like in 1900. And this is, so, this is where Putin is today. If you look at that empire, this is what he's thinking. These are the territories that he wants. 
And of course, it also includes the Baltic states and parts of Poland. It doesn't include the western part of Ukraine, um, Galicia, where the city of Lviv is. So I think that's where we are today. And if that describes Ukraine, it's um, in the past, it was a, a great black earth agricultural region, also a very important industrial region in the east with coal and steel and chemicals. Today, it's more high tech, I think. It's much more oriented towards new industries. But it's a modern nation. And in spite of all the problems economically, and in spite of corruption, because Ukraine has suffered from that, it has, been, it has remained democratic. Uh, unlike Russia, unlike Belarus, Ukraine changes its president quite regularly, usually every five years, with, with one exception. And Russia has had, well, you could say three presidents, but really it's two presidents because Medvedev was just um, following Putin's orders. Belarus has had one president from 1994 onward. So that, I think, it's an indication that Ukraine is somewhat different from the other states. That's not to say it's not made some mistakes. I think the memory laws of 2015 were an error, in my opinion, the attempt to completely eradicate the communist period. Because harsh as it was, there were some elements of it that were not retrogressive, and there were also communists within Ukraine who worked for Ukraine's independence and Ukraine's future. So to some extent, I thought it was a mistake if you just replaced the communists with some kind of national vision of the future, uh, which Poroshenko tried to do. Having said that, no one deserves what's happening to Ukraine today. I mean, it's, it's simply outrageous. There's really nothing that can justify it. already touched on one of the reasons why it's believed that Putin is invading Ukraine is because he believes that Russia has a claim to it, that Ukraine isn't its own country effectively when you look at the supposed history from a certain point of view. But I also wanted to possibly touch on some of the other reasons he's presented over the past week of the claim of denazification, the peacekeeping missions to defend the two independent republics of Russia recognized as of last week. Also, he's started throwing around more aggressive terms, saying that they want to stop the genocide of Russian-speaking Ukrainians, which is almost new vocabulary There was never really mentioned before of any sort of genocide happening. So could you, could you kind of touch on what other reasons Putin has presented to justify his actions? Yeah, I mean, the neo-Nazi charge is frankly ludicrous. I mean, the leader of Ukraine is is Jewish. Uh, the former prime minister of Ukraine was Jewish. There are Russian, the Russian speakers in the Ukrainian parliament. I mean, the pro-Russian opposition party is, at the moment, either second or third largest faction in the parliament. I mean, this is not something that you could say they've neglected a, a Russian-speaking population and Russian speakers were very prominent in the Maidan, Euromaidan or Revolution of Dignity in 2014-15. So that kind of doesn't wash at all. And if you look at Ukrainian elections, they tend to go for the moderate candidate with no strong political leanings, right or left. And the far right, which Putin has seemingly focused on, has got between one and three percent at the most in any election. And, and you could argue, maybe in the United States, for example, the far right would get far more than, than that than they did in Ukraine. So I don't think this really holds any water. As for protecting the population of the Donbass, I mean, that population has not really been under any threat for the past eight years. I mean, they've managed to survive. Their schools are open. 
I felt in 2014, yeah, there were attacks on civilian populations. The cities were heavily bombarded. Um, two million people left the whole war zone as refugees. You might make that argument that Ukraine could have treated them better. On the other hand, these separatist factions were maintained in power only by support from Russia. If you'd had a democratic vote, they would not have won. And I would back that up by the previous elections that were held in the Donbass, which clearly thinks of itself in terms quite differently from the rest of Ukraine. No question about that. But there's no obvious sign that it wanted to leave Ukraine. And you could look at all the elections that happened since 1991, and that is the case. And I believe when there was a referendum on Ukrainian independence, a free referendum in 1991, the Donbass vote was over 60% in favor. And even Crimea was 55% in favor. So that shows to me there's no, there's no, nothing about the population there that suggests they would want to be freed by Russia. Now, the group that's in power, yes, they're kept in power by Russia. They're appointed by Russia. Denis Pushilin, the leader of Donetsk People's Republic, was appointed in Rostov by a meeting of Russian officials. There was nothing from within. He's a Russian appointee. So my feeling was that this Putin's claims are all completely bogus. And in fact, some of them are just totally ridiculous. And, and should not be taken seriously. And he's got more and more erratic, I think, in some of his statements, as has Lavrov, by the way. Lavrov has also seemingly moved from a, a rational diplomat to a rabid Putinite, if you like. Maybe to stay in power, I don't know. That's what I think about that one. In a similar vein, I wanted to touch on the discussion of NATO of the West's role in all of this, in that Putin is saying that Russian national security demands are not being met, that this is a blatant act of NATO expansion, that Ukraine joining NATO would be a danger to Russia itself. What is the validity of, of these sort of claims? Well, Putin is looking at the expansion of NATO, and he's got several Western government and, I would say, political figures, and even academics, on his side on this one. Mearsheimer, for example, is, is one of them. Jack Matlock, the former American ambassador to the Soviet Union, is another. But NATO has advanced. If you look at the countries that have been joining NATO, that are on the Russian border, first of all, none have joined for the past 18 years. And in those 18 years, Putin has always been in power. So why now? Why, are you bothered? why is this bothering you now when it's not bothered you for 18 years? And second, the countries in question are no threat to, to Russia. The three Baltic states, what, about eight, eight and a half, nine million people between them, a threat to Russia? The threat is the other way around. The threat, the feeling is in these states, there's a threat from Russia to them. A couple of them have quite sizable Russian populations too, Latvia and Estonia. So they're afraid. Poland, I think Poland was also concerned. And given the history of the two countries, perhaps that's not so surprising. And Poland joined NATO in 1999, so even longer, 23 years ago. So it's not rational from my point of view. In Romania, there's no threat to the Russia, for Russia from Romania. And there's no danger to Russia from NATO. So yeah, you can look and see that these countries have joined NATO. Most of them join NATO when they join the European Union. They seem to do it just one after the other. Interesting to me that today you've now got countries that are not in NATO, like Sweden and Finland, which are talking about joining. And even Switzerland is, is more or less giving up neutrality, given what's happening in Ukraine. So this suggests to me that the aggressor is Russia in each case. 
People are worried about Russia, not the other way around. No one is going to attack a state with nuclear weapons. It would be just committing suicide. On that topic as well, were you surprised by how much unity we're seeing within European states, joining with the US, with all of these, this massive package of sanctions that have been piled on Russia, all kind of together? Like, oh, it seems like Putin wasn't expecting this, and a lot of even Western academics weren't expecting this level of cooperation to sort of tackle Russia's aggression right now. Yeah, I think it's quite remarkable. And the biggest surprise to me was, was the German response postponing the pipeline indefinitely, even though it's completed, and then sending uh, lethal weapons to Ukraine. And that suggests a complete change. Of course, Merkel is now gone. And I was trying to think what would have happened if Merkel had still been there. I suspect she would have kept talking as long as possible, like Macron did. But with the new chancellor, Schultz taking over, he's taken a much firmer stance. And I think it's really unified the Europeans. Macron is still still talking a little bit to Putin. But I think for the most part, the Europeans have, have hung together and the British as well. They're not part of the European Union, but they've certainly maintained a very strong stance. And I'm interested to see actually if the British will really crack down on oligarch holdings in that country. Roman Abramovich has given up control of Chelsea Football Club and yet he's also said that he would give money to Ukrainian refugees and humanitarian causes. He's kind of broken ranks. The other oligarchs have been heavily punished, but at the same time, they're still there. And more could be done, I think, by, by Boris Johnson. But still, Britain is in there as well. And I think the critical thing is that the US changed its presidency in 2020. Because if Donald Trump was president now, I'm not sure what the US response would be and the US leadership would be. But with Biden there, uh, he's absolutely committed. And he said from the outset that if there was one step into Ukraine, he would hit Russia with everything. And he has done. He has done. And I think that's, that's commendable and it's surprising, yeah. So we're seeing a lot of lethal aid, a lot of sanctions that are expected and already seeming having these sort of long-term consequences on Russia's economy, on its imports and trade. But this isn't the first time, obviously, we've been putting sanctions on Russia. There have been years beforehand that were sanctions that were meant to deter what we're effectively seeing right now. So why didn't the sanctions from previous years effectively deter Putin? Well, for one thing, they weren't as harsh. And second, there were countries that didn't agree with them. Uh, in Europe as well. So there was no kind of unity on, on sanctions and how harsh they should be. I think there was consensus that Russia should not have invaded Crimea and, you, and this an annexation should not be accepted. But Russia has done this periodically throughout its independent history, grabbed some territory, fomented little war, and then kind of just left it to fester. It did it in Moldova in 1992-93. I did it in Georgia in 2000. Eight did it in Crimea, did it in Donbass. Well, Crimea annexed it, but in Donbass allowed the war to continue as well. And it seemed that you know they didn't really want to bring these things to a to a solution. But this time, it's not just a little war. I mean, the Russia could have come in and either expanded the Donbass, captured Mariupol, something of that nature, but not attack Kiev and not attack, you know, installations all across Ukraine and not send its armies up from Crimea into Ukraine. This is a full scale invasion. So I think it's quite different. And the response has been different. 
and now everybody's on board with it. And I think it's already, after a week, it's, taken, it's had tremendous effect. And you can go back, I think, even to the period of apartheid and, and look at cases where sanctions were not completely effective and therefore they didn't work. With Belarus as well in 2020, these sanctions, you know, somehow forgot the fact that Belarus was exporting potash through Lithuania. And Lithuania sort of woke up and then said, oh, well, we're going to stop doing that. But there were always loopholes. There's a loophole now, too, because in a way, China could take up the slack to some extent. It could import Russian oil and gas if the Europeans are brave enough to cut it off completely. But I think even in the long term, the Chinese want to, to start trade up again. This is no, of no use to them whatsoever. A war in the middle of Europe about, about nothing that could go on forever. So I think China would like to see the war end as soon as possible. I'm thinking that way anyway. I know some of my colleagues disagree with me. They're saying China's just standing by and watching quite happily. Yeah, there's been mixed reports. No one quite knows what's about to happen in the next week. There's just nothing but questions. Yeah. But I did want to ask yeah. about Belarus. What What is Belarus's role in all of this as well? Because they they kind of... People who have been studying Belarus sort of saw this coming. But for a lot of people, it was a little bit blindsiding to see Russian troops head through Belarus into Ukraine to see that Lukashenko is 100% standing behind Putin right now. Well, that relationship has changed since August 2020 elections, when Lukashenko was obviously defeated in the election, but refused to step down. And mass demonstrations then took place that lasted at least four months on a mass scale. Hundreds of thousands of people coming into the streets, which nobody had ever seen before. And the solution to this was was just pure state violence through um, security forces, Oman forces, rounding people up, torturing them, imprisoning them, many forced abroad. Um, There must be about a million Belarusians now living outside Belarus who've left recently. And therefore, what you've got is a kind of rump state ruled by someone with no legitimacy whatsoever and who has no friends other than Russia and specifically Vladimir Putin. And Putin has stepped in, but with conditions attached. Uh, There are already two small Russian bases in Belarus. He wants to set up an air force base in Belarus. The two countries have had joint military exercises for about six or seven years now, Operation Zapal. And from being a sort of quasi-equal of Putin in meetings, Lukashenko now is the weakest partner, and he's accepting everything that Putin suggests. Russia has moved into Belarus in a number of ways. It's tried to form political parties, although Lukashenko's tried to stop those from forming. It's taken over the media in Belarus completely. I mean, even to the extent that the reporters in Belarus are from Russia. Foreign policy is being coordinated now directly between the two foreign ministries to the extent that Belarusian foreign ministry will never issue a statement without checking it with Moscow first. And so you've really already had a takeover of Belarus before the invasion of Ukraine. And this current exercise, Operation Fortitude, uh, February the 10th to the 20th, it was to take place, is completely nothing to do with the Operation Zappa. This was something that came out of the blue. And obviously, the idea was to use it as a basis for invasion of Ukraine. We know that now because this is where the troops who took Chernobyl came from. Are the Belarusians themselves taking part in the fighting? Ukraine says yes. Lukashenko says no. There have been some reports of Belarusians uh, taken prisoner. I think for the most part, the regular Belarusian army, the paratroopers in particular, have not yet been used, but could be brought in. And if Putin orders it, they will go. I think that's pretty clear. 
but there's a, there's a sub society, if you like, in Belarus. I mean, groups, large groups that are not only opposed to the war. They would like a democratic Belarus. They they would really like to bring change. I heard a story, by the way, that a bus in Minsk yesterday. The driver started playing Victor Soy's song "Peramen Changes." part of the demonstrations and everybody applauded on the bus and many started singing him. I mean, this is just a bus. And I think when there were the anti-war demonstrations in Belarus as well, the day before yesterday or yesterday, all the cars going by were, were honking in support in the center of Minsk. So what you have in Belarus is this kind of dictatorship, but an, un, uh, an unhappy dictatorship where most of the population would be opposed to, to fighting Ukraine. On the other hand, the media in Belarus, being so controlled by Russia, has pro-Russian leanings. It is, it is sentimentally pro-Russian. And that even applied to the opposition election campaign as well. There was nothing anti-Russian in that campaign. But this is going much too far for everybody. similar vein, I wanted to touch on your thoughts on the Russian people as well, because we are seeing also reports of, of protests there. But as amidst all of the misinformation, disinformation, we're also reading that many of the Russian people, obviously because of the media and how it is controlled by the Kremlin, just aren't even aware of the severity of the situation in Ukraine. And it's been very mixed reactions where you have a Levada poll saying that they're 100% behind this, but you also have to factor in that they can't really speak out against the war. There's an underlying fear. But regardless, I, I think it's fair to say Putin certainly isn't acting in, in their interests either. He's acting in his own interests. That's true. And I think the, the better educated the people are, the more likely they are to oppose the war. And people who've traveled widely or had access to international media would be opposed. But let's say you're in some backwater somewhere Norilsk or somewhere like that, you probably don't even know there's a war taking place from, from reading the media there. And if you do, it's a bunch of Nazis who are, who've taken over Kiev and have to be removed from power. And that it's just a special mission to do that. It's nothing serious. They would not get the pictures that we're getting of civilian, civilian buildings being destroyed and complete uh, devastation, or at least Kiev and Kharkiv and, and Kherson and other cities. So I think the Russian people will turn against the war the longer it goes on. And the more things that cause them suffering will lead them to turn against the war as well. Um, right now, the people who are suffering are those who can't get into the ATMs and, and the people who have foreign bank accounts that have suddenly gone frozen. But the people who suffer in these, in these things are usually the poorest stratum of the population. And eventually... I would suggest that the government of Russia must put some pressure on Putin to stop at some point. I mean, logically, they would have to do, especially if they, if they don't capture Kiev, say, three or four weeks, a month, it's looking like a disaster. And the number of casualties they're sustaining is already quite high. When you think, if there are 4,500 Russian casualties already, you look at 10 years in Afghanistan, you've got about 15,000. This is after one week. And Afghanistan was extremely unpopular, even in the Soviet period, when people were sort of just attuned to Soviet media. So, yeah, I think this could take off, but it's not happened yet. And right now, Putin is OK. I don't think he's going to be overthrown just yet. 
Let's let's pivot to Ukraine itself. We're we're seeing very surprising pushback from the Ukrainian armies. We're seeing very high morale because they're buoyed by by their president Zelensky, who we were joking about a few weeks ago, and now suddenly he's this heroic figure. The, the stories of the ghost of Kiev, all of these things are are very much uplifting the Ukrainian army. But at the same time, if you look at the numbers, it still doesn't look hopeful, even with all of the aid that's being pushed in. So. What what is your take currently on on the situation as it stands? Well, you're right. The forces are unequal, but there's certainly the will to fight. You know, nothing has been broken, and Zelensky, as you rightly said, is now the pivotal figure. He's made himself the pivotal figure by refusing to leave, refusing the office to leave, and appearing on TV every day, committed to the cause. Popularity rates is about 93% now, and. This was unexpected, I think. I mean, he was always been a good speaker, but he's been a good speaker who didn't like to hear criticism and, and tended to react very irritably if he was criticized. Uh, he's managed to, to come forward as a sort of pivotal figure. And even if he gets killed, even if he were to be killed in an attack, he's always going to be a hero. I mean, he would he'd be a kind of cult figure and would always be remembered for what he's done in this war, even though it's just the beginning. And I think Ukrainians themselves have gone too far down the road to democracy towards Europe to go back again. They do not want to go back to control from Moscow. And this applies right across Ukraine. And it's being seen in the way the fighting is taking place. Also, I mean, there is a fact that Russia sent its raw recruits. I mean, some of these kids have been captured, we see being interviewed on Facebook and had no idea where they were going and didn't know what to do when they got there. Some of them had virtually no training. And so even Molotov cocktails are going to be useful. And in terms of the inequality of numbers, there are other cases where the numbers seem to be completely lopsided, but the war turns out different ways. The numbers in Afghanistan were very unequal. I mean, the numbers of in the Vietnam War were very unequal with the American side. It doesn't always work that one side with all the weaponry is going to win the war. It's the side that is prepared to sacrifice the most, commit the most to winning the war. And even if Kiev were to be taken over by this vast column, which seems to be stopped at the moment, uh, it wouldn't be the end of the war because there would be guerrilla resistance for years and years to come. There's no way that the population of Ukraine would ever accept this. Neither would Europe and most of the world. That was going to be my follow-up question. <laughs> <laughs> was it? About, right, well, like looking at, like, if, even if he gets Kiev, you, you have to look at a population that is angry and furious that you're still there and that that is a protracted, essentially, stay because you have to, if, if he took all of his troops out, that government, that public government that he put up would collapse within a few days. Yeah, so. it, would, it would collapse or, or it would have to remain in power just by violence, as in, as in Belarus. Just want to end sort of on a more maybe hopeful note for our general listeners. What else is there that we can do just as a regular person? What else is there that we can do to sort of support Ukrainians and to keep an eye on the situation? What options are there? Well, the number, I think, as a university, my university, your university, we could take symbolic actions. We could have petitions. We could put the Ukrainian flag up on the buildings. We could alert our local governments to the situation in Ukraine, demonstrate outside Russian embassies, demonstrate in major cities, 
But above all, I think, you know, we live in an academic world and I think it's academic writing and publicity that is equally effective, just as far as we know what the most accurate view of the situation is and why we should do something about it. So I think all these are factors. And I think for me, it's it, talking is the best thing I can, I can do in this in this case. And I think it's all, it all has some effect, as small as it is. There are also, of course, many humanitarian organizations sending food and, and other stuff to Ukraine, maybe clothes and things like that. It seems for a lot of us, it's, it's, it's obvious why we should care about Ukraine. But for those that are maybe on the fence, do, do you have kind of a good response to, to approach the people that just don't see the point in, in supporting this, this country and, and the crisis that it's going through? Well, it's not just Ukraine. It's really a crisis of the way we're going to view the future world. Are we going to support democracy or are we going to kowtow to dictators using force to get their way? The kind of might is right attitude that we saw earlier in the 20th, 20th century for the most part. And I think we're too far now advanced to accept this kind of dictatorship and diktats from Moscow or anywhere else for that matter. And therefore what's happening in Ukraine today could be happening in your country tomorrow and that it's just important to stop it now before it spreads any further and that people like Putin should be removed from power. Just as we remove people like Saddam Hussein, we remove people like Hitler, Putin's got to go. Slava Connection listeners, if you are interested in supporting Ukraine and its people or are looking for places to donate to support humanitarian efforts in the ongoing war, please visit our website and check out the links on the page for this episode. We have a long list of resources that you can access, organizations that you can donate to. So please, whenever you have a minute, take a look. The Slava Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network, the conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slobxradio.com. Thank you. The Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies condemns the Russian Federation's military invasion of Ukraine. We stand in support of the people of Ukraine who are fighting for their lives and sovereignty in the face of the unjustified invasion by Russian military forces.